This is The Process.ink, episode number two. This is The Process.ink. I'm Tom Benedek, checking in from high up in the Santa Monica Mountains of Greater Los Angeles, California. I'm getting around town a little bit with this podcast, recording talks with wonderful TV and film writers, showrunners, producers, filmmakers, learning how they work creatively, and a few other things. Today's guest is show business legend, writer-producer, Peter Tolan. His credits include Rescue Me, Gaffigan, Analyze This, The Larry Sanders Show, on and on. Peter is currently writing a pilot for Showtime and executive producing the series Outsiders on WGM. I went out to beautiful downtown Santa Monica to sit down with Peter. This is The Process, and uh, we're doing a UMass special edition with a fellow graduate, Peter Tolan. And uh, you graduated in 19... I was supposed to graduate in 80, and I never graduated. I am not technically a graduate of the school. And every time they call and want to give me something, I go, you remember I'm not a graduate, but and they don't see they didn't mind. give you an honorary degree? They did, but that was so not a until... Doctor, are you a doctor? I'm then? a doctor. I'm Dr. Tolan. Whenever I get mail from UMass, it says to Dr. Tolan. So I do make some house calls and will oftentimes give a second opinion if people need it. But uh, <laughs> again, I reminded them, I'm not technically a graduate. So I skipped that process, but and I told my own children, don't go that route. Don't wait you know, 20 years or whatever the heck it was. Until you get an honorary degree. Yeah, exactly. You broke away and went into show business? You were a theater major? You were acting up there? Or what were you doing? I went in 76 as a freshman with the hopes of being like a serious student. But I made a crucial error early on, which was that I think I took a number of things. I was always interested in theater. Like, I thought I was going to go into theater even then. But I was not majoring in theater at that time. And I took botany, but not freshman botany. Like, botany for majors. I was completely in over my head. I think I'd worked in a garden store as a kid, and I thought, well, I'll botany, right? Or maybe I didn't know or whatever about canceling classes or whatever, or getting out of them, whatever they call that. I stuck with it and got an F. Right from the first semester, my grade point average was like, like oh. that because of that one thing. And I sort of went, oh, all right, well, I'm not really interested in those classes anyway. And I think I was an English major at one time, political science at one time. I finally gave in and became a theater major. I didn't have an appreciation for the structure of the department at the time, so that didn't work out. Because most of the time, I was just doing my own thing. I was doing plays, and not just at UMass, but at Amherst and Mount Holyoke and Smith and you name it. I was just either directing stuff, and I started to write, too, around that time. So that's great. So it was a creatively fertile yeah. environment in Pioneer Valley and the five colleges in yep. UMass. So that's great. And so then you had a comedy route. You were a comic or you had an improv? I didn't do improv then, but I had a friend at Amherst. It's been so long, I can't even remember how these things all came together. But I had a friend at Amherst, and he was doing these, I think, one a semester, like a musical comedy sort of review. There'd be music, and then there'd be sketches and things like that. And I somehow was in one of them at Amherst. And I thought, boy, nobody's ever done this at UMass. So I somehow figured out to go to, there was a student activities thing you could go to. And I said, well, I want to do this show, and I need some money. And they gave me, not much, but they gave me some money. And I used it for posters and things like that. And I wrote this show, and it was called Now You See It, Wish You Didn't. That's what it was called. And it was only one night, and it was in Bowker. Wow. Which I love Bowker. And I got some people I knew from doing shows and whatever. I cast it. And it was really like one of the best nights I ever had in the theater. And I was in it. it in terms of, like, it all worked. I mean, I had no idea. First of all, if people would show up. 
it killed this thing. It was so good. And people loved it. But it was really one night. So then I started to do those once a semester. And there was a million different title variations. And it moved from Bowker to sometimes it was in the dining commons in Southwest. And, you know, you do it two nights in a row. That's great. Great. That's Absolutely fantastic. Great. And what it was, it was scenes and yeah, comic scenes? It or? would be like, you name it. You know, keep in mind, I was a young person, so it was probably fairly sophomoric, but it was very UMass-centric humor, so it was about the school. I remember one of the sketches in the first one was like sort of a speech welcoming people to UMass with slides, and the slides were so off-topic. It would be like the dining commons and the different living areas and things like that, and it was all funny. Oh, I don't even remember what I did. It was silly, but then we'd do music in between. I was not writing music at the time, so we'd do show tunes that we either adjusted. Later on, I think, I started to do parodies of musicals set to UMass. So I think there was Southwest Side Story, and I did a Fiddler on the Roof parody that was actually pretty... I mean, they were goofy, but people loved them. I mean, it was very, very popular. That's great. Shows. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, it required a lot of energy, and that oh, yeah. was something as a college student, just rip it out there. Yeah, and I loved doing it, and I actually made a little money, too, so I was actually sort of surviving on it. So you, you, you sold tickets, and you were able to make a profit on the... Yeah. On the, I mean, back then, if you were yeah. selling a ticket for a buck, probably. And then you moved to New York and started doing the same no. thing? or I had a job on campus because I needed to make other money. And the job I had, I was a house manager at the Fine Arts Center. The woman who was in charge of it then was a woman named Barbara Aldrich, who was like, you know, sort of my godmother. And there was a guy backstage who ran the backstage named Jim McCrosty. McCrosty was a big Scotsman. You know, sometimes he'd actually show up in a kilt, great beard and pipe. And, and I was flunking out of school near the end of my senior year. I'd hoped to flunk out right after a graduation. And I missed it by that much, but I missed it. And I didn't. And I said to him, I was sort of saying to him, I don't know where I'm going to go. I can't come back here. They've asked me to step away and reconsider my options since I really wasn't going to class that much. And he said, well, I worked in a theater in Minneapolis. Now, I'm going to say this is probably, he probably worked there in the 50s with this fellow named Dudley Riggs, former circus performer who had opened a coffee house. He was like a sort of a Mort Sol, you know, he'd take the newspaper and read whatever. And it had turned into this sort of Twin Cities institution, this improv theater that eventually became known as the Brave New Workshop. So he said, I know this guy. He's doing these topical sort of comedy reviews with music, which is exactly what you do. So I'm going to call him. So we went backstage up into his office and he got the guy on the phone. This is at night. I don't know what time it was in Minneapolis. And he said, I've got this clever young man here, and I think you should give him a job. And I got on the phone with him, and he said, oh, well, what do you do? And I go, I do this, I do that. I write these things, and so people would like them, and whatever. And he goes, all right, all right, well, sure, I'll give you a job. And I was like, this is amazing. Whoa. This is amazing. I mean, the real world is fantastic. Why did I ever go to school? Because if people are this open. So I hung out. I also was running in my hometown in Situate a summer theater for kids, for young people ages 10 to 21 or something like that, which ran eventually for 25 years, if you can believe it. we do two shows a summer, and that was another way that I was doing the thing I wanted to do, but also making some money, too. And so you kept doing that? I mean, I went back home that summer and did it again. Now, and that's the, probably the last summer I did. I started it and probably did the first four years, because I started when I was 17 or something like that. It was a crazy idea. And then another person ran it from that point on. 
And I hooked up with a friend from UMass who was going to graduate school at Ann Arbor, so he drove me up to Ann Arbor. I wonder sometimes where I got the balls to do half of the things <laughs> I did. But I got on a train, spent the night in Detroit. This is Detroit in 1970s. Let's see, 80. The early fall of 80. And I've never seen a rat. It was big enough. I think it had a saddle <laughs> on it. And another smaller rat was riding it. And then I went to Chicago. And I can't believe I did this, but I got off the train. I think I had it stopped, or maybe I planned it that way. And I went to Second City, and I showed up in Second City, and I went, I'm here. And they went, who are you? And I said, Peter Tolman. I've just come all the way from Boston for my audition. And they went, we have no record of you coming or anything. And so they felt so bad. <laughs> they scrambled and auditioned me for wow. Second City. Is that crazy? All a lie. And I spent the day because I didn't know where to go, with Del Close, who's sort of the godfather of American improvisation. Yeah. I spent the day with him, all day. You know, he was What did you do? We went to a bar. He wasn't supposed to be drinking. He was a real character. For a long time, I was going to write a movie based on his life. Never came together, at least with me. I think it's being done. We went someplace else, and then we went to... He's teaching improv, and he wept while he was teaching it because it was so spiritual and all this. And I was like, mm-hmm. But eventually, I don't know when I got on the train the next day, but I ended up in Minneapolis, and it was like a movie. I got two suitcases, and it's raining, and I said to the cab driver, take me to Dudley Riggs, and thank God he took me to the right place, because Dudley had two theaters. And he took me there, and I lived with his son in some very spooky apartment for a while, and I went to the theater, and he said, all right, I promised you a job. You're the janitor, which is not, <laughs> not what I was expecting. I mean, I guess I could have asked ahead, like, what that job was, but I was the janitor in the theater. And so that was a little bit of a setback. And I did it for a couple of weeks just so I could learn the city a little bit. And then at a certain point, I left and I got a real job that wouldn't require me scrubbing toilets. And sometime later, they remembered me and that I played the piano. And they said, we need a music director for the touring company. They, just like Second City, they had a touring company as well. When I took that, then I said, I'll take some improv classes. I was just very quick on my feet. So they hired me to go from the music director of the touring company to actually being an actor in their main stage. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I went across town to the theater that I'd been dropped off at and started again to write my own stuff. But this time I was writing music and everything. And I did that for two years. And so how long did it take before you were working creatively in the theater when you hit Minneapolis? Seven months, something like that. But then I really wanted to be in that improv company. But then, you know, you do it and it's a year and a half, two years, and it's very repetitive. But improv part of it was fun. But doing the actual show was yeah. kind of mind-numbing. So, And I just wanted to do something different. So I went to this other theater. It was almost like a repeat of UMass because I was doing the same sort of thing, really. Except it wasn't about UMass anymore. It was about Minneapolis. So there'd be songs about specific things in Minneapolis. A musical, topical review, which, again, nobody had done there in years and years and years. So it's like, a new thing. So I probably did all kinds of shows there. Probably did four of those, and then I did a, a straight musical, and then I did a play with music. I did everything. So it was like another training ground. And then, four years to the day after arriving in Minneapolis, then I went to New York from there. And that was an eye-opener. <laughs> in New York, you did improv, or you wrote, or what? No, for a while I didn't do anything. I probably wrote another show back from Minneapolis for somebody else to do. I did that. I started to try to write a screenplay. I remember doing that, but not with any real purpose. You know, sometimes I look back on my life and career and you think it's, you know, there was some book I read recently called The Drunkard's Walk about how haphazard 
chances. It's not like I had this, I'm going to do that. It was this wandering and, through things. And you ended up writing Analyze This with Harold, but between New York and there, what was the trajectory? Well, I really still thought I was going to work in the theater. And I'm from the East Coast, so I didn't really look fondly on the West Coast. And you, were, and you were a theater guy as a kid. You weren't a movie Not really. Not really. I like movies, but I never imagined, oh, I'll do that someday. Not at all. It was always theater. So I went to New York and sort of futzed around. And then I would say for about six months, I was really just acclimating and not really doing much, going through my savings pretty much. A friend called and said, I'm starting a theater company, an improv theater company in Boston. Would you come and do it? And I said, yes. And I went up and I got a woman from Minneapolis who had been in a number of my shows. And I said, would you move to go do this? She said, yes. So we're now in Boston. And pretty quickly, it turns out our comic sensibility doesn't mesh with these other people. So we quit. And now we're stuck in Boston. And we said, what are we going to do? I said, well, it'll just be a comedy team. It'll be like a Nichols and May. We'll do sketches and some music and whatever, you know? So we did that. And we went to a place in Somerville. I forget what it's called. For some reason, I'm thinking Lyles, but I know that's not right. Maybe it is right. We did a show there and that was well received. And people were like, hey, you know, these guys are good. And we were like, well, why shouldn't we just go to New York? So we went to New York. And so now there was this double trajectory where I was doing the act with her and we would do you know, clubs and cabarets in town, which there were plenty of at the time. We were more of a club act than anything else. And at, around that time, I don't remember how this came up. There was a theater in New York on Theater Row called the Manhattan Punchline. It's defunct now, but it did an annual festival of one act comedies. And I guess I thought, hey, I couldn't write one of those, right? I had never done it before, but I thought, one act, that's easy, right? Two would be hard. So I wrote a one act comedy, I turned it in, and they said, yeah, they were going to do it. And it was well reviewed. It was reviewed in the Times, but it was well reviewed. And I don't remember if that year, because then I would do one every year, and they would get accepted. So I did four person, two person. The last one was a mini musical about human fertilization. It was a parody of a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, except it explained perfectly human fertilization. So it had three sperm and an egg. It was very, very good. <laughs> So I was doing that, and as I was doing the plays, because it was reviewed in the Times, people from Hollywood would come out and see these things. So they saw some of the plays. I don't remember which ones. And I know one time people said, you should work in television. What they said was, you're glib, <laughs> and you should work in television. And I didn't want to go. I was just like, oh, please, please, television, it's filthy. I just had higher, loftier goals in the and theater. This, what were the big shows at that time? Well, this would have been about 87. When they first came, it was like 87. I don't even remember what was on. Seinfeld had started roughly around Seinfeld had probably started. R yeah. yeah. Cheers yeah. may have been ending. Yeah. Friends may have been starting. Maybe. Been that on. seems a little early. I don't remember. Yeah. But there was stuff, but I just wasn't interested. And so I had another play. And in the meantime, now I'd made this association with this theater. And I said, you know, my partner and I do an act. And it's really not a club act. It's more of a theater act. You should produce it. And they said, okay. I'm making this all sound easy, but looking yeah. back, I guess it was. And they produced it, and some producers came, and they said, we want to move this off-Broadway. So we did it off-Broadway in a theater uh, on the east side. So it ran for like four months. And so it ran, and I was like, well, I don't think that's going to go anywhere else. And now I'm getting close to 30, and I'm married for the first time, and... 
I've got in-laws who are thinking I'm really not amounting to much, and I'm really not making a lot of money in the theater. And I, I was working like in that agency and stuff to make extra money. But so I just said, okay, that's it. I'm gonna, you know, I'd written a play, and my wife at the time, we lived in a little apartment in Brooklyn Heights, and we had a big dog, so we wasn't a lot of room because the big dog and the little apartment. And she used to watch TV on Monday nights on CBS, and at that time it was Designing Women and Murphy Brown, and it was a big women comedy book, yeah. you know? And because the apartment was so small, I wasn't watching it, but I was hearing it. And I was kind of like, okay, you know what? If I was going to work for a show, I'd work on Murphy Brown. That suits my sensibility. I think that worked. So I called my agents. Thank God I had agents, because I had agents from the act with my partner. And I said, I think I want to write for television. So I'm sure they ejaculated at that point, because I'd actually <laughs> be making real money. And I said, I just need to know what a script looks like. And they got me a Murphy Brown script. I think they might have gotten the pilot. And I saw, okay, how to do that and then I figured out a story and I stayed late at work at the ad agency and typed my script on a IBM Selectric with the ball and the yeah. correction fluid and I gave it to my agents and they said great and they took that and I think the last play that I had written which was the more mature of them I guess and sent it out and I got all these meetings this is probably late 89 90 because the show was 89 and that ended in the spring Diane English had created Murphy Brown. I said, has she read my stuff? They said, you're not going to get hired on that show. You never get hired on the show that you write the spec script for. So don't worry about that. But I had all these other meetings. And eventually, Diane English read it. She said, I want to hire you. And I said, great. Gave up my apartment. Got to move. Got the big dog and everything. Then she called and said, I can't hire you because I'm having a contract dispute with Warner Brothers. But as soon as that's over with, I'll hire you. But I was like, I was moving oh. and I had no money. And so I said, well, I'll hang on for as long as I can. And I couldn't. And I took a job on a show with Carol Burnett called Carol and Company that was oh, on wow. NBC for two years. It was only on for two years. Very difficult show. It was an anthology show, which meant she was doing it, playing a different character every week. So in effect, you're writing a pilot every week. And in the meantime, then Diane called and said is there any way you can still write some episodes? So I went to my boss on that, on Carol Company, and God bless him, he said, yeah, go ahead. So I wrote two episodes of Murphy Brown while I was doing the other show. That show ended, and then I went and joined Murphy Brown probably in the fourth season of that show. That's how I got to California and how I got that first job. I didn't go to California at 23 or 24. I went at 30, so I felt like I had to make up for lost time. So I worked all the time. I took no time off. I did Murphy Brown, and then when that ended, during the summer, I went to another show. I'd do whatever. Billy Crystal was doing a show for HBO called Sessions, about a guy in therapy. And I wrote one of those. But that's how I met Billy, and uh -huh. I met this guy named Fred Barron, lovely guy, who had done a lot of stuff in TV. And Fred, then the next, I forget the timeline of it all, but Fred was executive producing with Gary Shandling this thing called The Larry Sanders Show, and it fell during my off time from Murphy Brown. So I went over, and Fred got fired almost immediately. <laughs> the guy who brought me in got fired. But it was a really interesting situation because... It was a great show. Great show. I made choices. I made some big choices because when I worked at Carolyn Company, when that went down, I could have just left. But somehow I got roped into, like Disney was all into the Disney thing. They said, well, you got to stay. And that fellow who was doing Carolyn Company was Matt Williams, who had created Roseanne. I had to stay and do the pilot and the first 
six episodes of a show called Home Improvement. And so Matt's like, you should stay. It's going to yeah. be a hit. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not what I came here to do. I got to follow the thing that I came here to do, which is Murphy Brown. And some years later, oh boy, I mean, this is terrible. But Matt called me again and said, I'm creating a show for Drew Carey. And this is while I'm on Murphy Brown. He says, I'm creating a show for Drew Carey. I want you to come and create it with me and you'll own it with me and all that. If it fails, I'll just put you back onto home improvement as a co-producer or whatever and give you points in the show. So I'm just like, I'm leaving. I'm like, I'm going to go do that because yes. I'm seeing points in home improvement. And that's a lot of money. And uh, I couldn't get out. I couldn't they leave. They just wouldn't let you get out. They kept saying they were going to let me out. And at the 11th hour, which Matt was not happy about, I was told I couldn't go. And then found out much later, it was Candace Bergen who had said, we don't want to lose him. He's a funny guy. And we don't want to well, lose him. You it don't speaks say, well of you, but it's what show tough. business gives <laughs> and it tough. takes away. No, it was just, tough. But they, it was okay. They play hardball when it matters to them. So. Yeah. It was fine. The thing with Larry Sanders was I thought Murphy Brown was the thing that I wanted to write. But then I realized, no, no, there's this other kind of comedy that's not punchlines and, you know, set up and punchline and things. Not that Murphy Brown wasn't great, but it was a very restrictive kind of writing. You had to get a certain number of jokes a page in. It was really tough. And this was much more adult. I don't mean in language. I mean in storytelling. Yeah, it was completely character-driven. And the stories Complete. had non-sequitur endings. And yeah. it was one of the first of a kind of show, yep. which is now what cable and television is all about in many areas. Yeah. You think you could say that? Easily. And I can only say it because so many other people have said it in the name of any number of people who go, you know what my inspiration was? The Larry Sanders show. They said that was a turning point. And I just knew how to write that show. Even though Fred was gone, I took over and just knew how to write it and continued to all the way to the end. Great. From there, you started doing features? Or yeah. Or called with Analyze This? Or how did that work out? It started because, I don't know if I was thinking ahead, I'm not sure, but my agents were like, you can make a lot of money being a script doctor and fixing scripts. And this is in the 90s, and there were a lot of comedies being made, tons of them. And so I started to do that, and I thought, I'll retire to that at some point down the line. I'll retire to it and not do television, because television's much more demanding. It's good because you do the work, and within a very short period of time, you see it get done. Whereas features, you do the work, and years go by, eventually, hopefully, someday. Yes, <laughs> so I know that well. That's a little tough. I rewrote a movie, and it got made. And I rewrote another one and it got made. And I probably had three in a row that everything I wrote actually went into production. So I got a good reputation, which I'm sure became sullied over time when I took on some tough ones. And they were really tough. Like I was one of the many people to rewrite The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Everybody in town rewrote that one. And it finally got made, which was amazing, you know, that Ben Stiller had a good take on it. So now I'm doing those and working in television. And probably by that time I started to get overall deals at studios. So I'm trying to create product and doing things like that. So I had a deal at Disney for a long time and then switched over to Sony. And I've been there for quite a while. So you have an overall in. deal now at Sony? Yeah. And lately you've been working on lots of shows. You yep. worked on Gaffigan yep. last year and mm -hmm. for a long time before that, I guess. Yeah. And you have written two pilots. You have a pilot at Amazon. You have a pilot at Showtime. At Showtime. Yeah. And you have the show Outsiders. Outsiders. It's on the air now, <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Which is not like the other shows. Not at all. You've done. So it yeah. must be interesting to work on something like that. 
you know, the good thing is I'm always uniquely fascinated in my own work, for better or worse. But every now and then somebody says, hey, would you look at this and maybe take this on to produce? And right, and that's what, how Outsiders came. Sony said, here's the script that we have. Look at this and maybe take this on to produce. And, and the, the guy who wrote it has never done television before. So would you take uh -huh. it on and sort of lead him through? And, and I did it. When we actually started to promote it, a lot of critics were sort of saying, this isn't like you. I mean, no, it's this isn't what from, you normally it's, write. I'm very different from Gaffigan. Oh, God. Uh, so can we talk about Gaffigan and just talk about your process as a writer? How does something germinate when you're working on a new project that's well, original? it may not be really instructive to talk about Gaffigan because that's a very specific thing where you're writing for a name. Uh -huh. You're writing for somebody and that person comes to you and says sometimes, but in that specific case, Jim came to me and said, here's what I want to do. I want to do a show about my life, which was interesting at the time. It's, I'm sure it's still interesting, but he and his wife lived with their four coming on, five children, but four at the time. Jim Gaffigan came to me and said, I want to do a show about my life. And his life was he and his wife and four, almost five children living in a fifth floor walk up in the Bowery in Manhattan in an 1,100 square foot apartment. He had pilots on oh, the they air, had, his tours oh, of comic sure. and done all this stuff. So that was just his... I don't know what it was. It was fascinating, though. It was really tight. It was a, everything stacked and stored and everything like that. Jeannie has a lot of energy, so she could figure out how to make that work. But they were specific. All I had to do was go, okay, tell me about your life. Let me come to your place and see what this is going on. But Jim's talked about a lot of the stuff in his act. So what we were going to use was a lot of things that he'd already talked about, like what it's like when you have that many kids and how people sort of either think you're a freak or a religious nut or something. Did you know him before that? No. Did you watch the stand-up? I probably watched a few of his yeah. shows. I went on YouTube or something and watched a bunch of stuff. So the first thing is I had to get his voice, like his delivery. It's not crucial, though, because I know he's also going to be writing with me. So he'll cover that. So I'm really looking at the skeleton of the thing. And, you know, so I know I need him and I know I need a wife, but how else am I going to populate that world? And so we created some other characters and people who could interact with the two of them in a good way. So the world of characters on the show, you kind of imagined those out, his yeah. friend yeah, but they, and the they, former boyfriend of his wife. And yeah, and there were subtle variations on real-life experiences. I think they did know a priest who was somewhat like that, but not really. And I think we decided an African priest would be good. And it was, this is for CBS. We wrote a pilot and shot it. Single camera in New York in February. It was really cold. And Jim said to me at one point, I want to use my real kids. And I'm like, you shouldn't use your real kids because we'll be on set and you won't be acting. You'll be being a father. Like going, my kids are tired. My kids are bored. My kids are misbehaved. You won't be thinking about what you're supposed to think about. But it, nevertheless, we did. And it didn't work 100%, that first pilot. But frankly, because CBS had said, given us some direction that didn't work. And they knew it. And they said, it's our fault. Do it again. What didn't work that they told you to do? There was some casting stuff that didn't work. It was so central to the thing, it didn't help. So we did it again. I wish I could remember the changes to the other characters. But I think we did a whole new script. We did a whole new story. And I think there were different characters in it. So we cast those people, and that went through that whole process. And recast everybody, I think. Unless I'm bad that I have this bad a memory. Around the time that we were making that, 
in New York City in February <laughs> the following year. Oh, I've never been so cold. It's awful. I kept saying to CBS, you guys are still interested in single-camera comedies, right? I mean, I can't do this as a multicam because of the five children. It would be impossible because children can only work a certain number of hours. And these children are extremely young. These children are all under the age of eight. So you have infants and the whole thing. You just can't do a show. You'd be pre-shooting so much of it, it would make no sense to do it that way. And they said, yes, 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 we still want to do single-camera comedy. And then they started to cancel all their single-camera comedies. I'm like, we're dead. We're dead. And we were. And so then something happened where TV Land jumped in and picked it up. And, and so the pilot that was on TV Land is the pilot that you shot for CBS? It's the or second one. It's the second There was snow on the ground. It was very, I don't think I've seen a pilot where there was snow on the ground. But it's know. not just even snow on the ground. It was like it was bitterly cold. Like you can see everybody's like acting like that. You know, it's really it's cold. Great. So the evolution of that family of characters, in terms of your how you've done that in the past and how you did that on that show or how it evolved, even suggestions rather than coming from your own brainstorming notes all the time, but coming from the yeah. principal and his family mentioned, is there something you could say about that? Yeah, I'm not going to say it about Gaffigan, though, because that's a small show, but I'll tell you about, like, for example, I'm doing my pilot for Showtime. is an idea that I've had forever, and I finally do it, which is years ago, I had a house on Cape Cod, Sandwich, and I was reading a book about Louis B. Mayer, and there's real, like, stuff that the studios used to do to people, you know, like criminal. And I thought, this is a show. And then sort of went, well, wait a minute. 940, through the war and stuff. So cars alone are going to kill you and sets. And it's just going to be a very, very costly show when you do period like that. So I thought, what other time in history in the movie business was, was there sort of a seismic shift that would have everybody involved be a little unsettled? So I went 1990-91, which was around the time that one of the studios was purchased by a conglomerate. So I thought, this is interesting. You've got, through the 80s, these years of sort of excess, sex, drugs, coke, all that butting up against being owned by a corporation with rules and restrictions and lawyers and all that sort of stuff. I said, that's a good time and a place. So now I start to think, okay, who is the story about? Who's it really about, you know? So you've got to look for a central character. And I got stuck there for a long time. This was gestating for years and years and years. And I told Sony about it at one point, and they're like, what's going on with that? Have you not, you know? I said, I'll get it, I'll get it. And I couldn't figure out my central character. Just like in the Louis B. Mayer book, you want somebody who's a dick, right? Who's outrageous behavior. But then how do you have an audience empathize with that character, care about that character if they're just a relentless dick. And I get stuck there and I decided I'll go in and I'll talk to my boss at Sony. Well, the thing is... <laughs> and just to see what he's like? No, no, no. I knew what he was like. But the fact is, I walked into the room and it was like a thunderclap where I went, wait a minute. I don't have a boss at Sony. I have two bosses. The heads of Sony television are two men. And I went, well, that's the answer. Like, one's a lunatic, and the other guy's trying to do the right thing. So now you start to ask yourself questions, right? So it took me a long time to figure out, like, what the question of rescue me was. I don't think I figured it out till like, the third or fifth year. I finally said to Dennis, you know what the show's about? A guy survives 9-11, and we're watching to see if he's actually going to survive. So that's a good central problem yeah. in the show. And so that's sort of the nugget of what the show is? That's it. And you always go back to that central idea or question. 
and on Rescue Me, you were two years in before yeah. you kind of realized yeah. that's what the show... Yeah. And a lot of TV people talk about, like, the show didn't really gel yeah. until we did a certain number of episodes. You no. call that a case of that? or No, that show had a weird trajectory where it actually was pretty good, like right from the yeah. beginning, and then got stronger through the second and third seasons, and then had a bad fourth season, and then sort of a resurgent long fifth season, and then... It just is a show that probably was on the air too long, so we started to sort of swim in circles and cover the same territory. So I think that's the encapsulated look at the history of Rescue Me in terms of how it went and how it should have gone. I guess I didn't need to think about what the show was, but one day I just said to him, you know what the show's really about? It's this. And once I said it, when we wrote to that, the shows would be very strong. When you were just in the back of your mind had that thing. So this show, the Showtime show, becomes about a lot of different things. And you want it to be about a lot of things. Like Outsiders is about a lot of different things. Somebody might see that show and go, well, you're a bunch of liberal, hippie, freak Hollywood people who are environmentalists. And that's like one of the least things it's about. It's really about being off the grid. It's about family. It's about technology and what it's doing to us. It's all these things. So the Showtime show, I said, okay, so some of the questions are, is it possible to... Be extremely successful, especially in show business, and not lose your sense of morality. Is that possible? Is it possible for two men to be successful together for any period of time? Because I'm not sure that's, except for Ben and Jerry, and they're high all the time. Who knows? I think that's a real interesting area because men are primarily are much more alpha. So the idea of needing or leaning on or having somebody to share your success is a tough thing. So I start to get those ideas. So once I know those ideas, and the central character that I'm following is not the dick. It's the other guy. The dick is he's the loose cannon who gets things done, hugely successful, but will do anything to win, to succeed. He's, you know, he's kind of a dark guy. But the other guy has this backstory, you know, son of a senator from Ohio, saw his father be kind of a prick to get ahead, says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to treat people a certain way. And we're watching to see if he's going to be able to maintain that position, which he doesn't, you know, over time, you see. But, you know, in the pilot. You see. So that sounds great. Is it a half hour or an hour? It's a drama or is it a drama drama with some comedy? It has some comedy. Very profane because you also want to say, hey, here's the movie business that is sending out material that in a way is, is sort of saying to the world, here's how you fall in love. Here's how you treat your family. Here's how you respect your country. Here's how you, all that stuff, all those messages are in what Hollywood puts out. Mm -hmm. But now you're seeing the absolute, you know, morally bankrupt people (laughs) who are putting that stuff out. Mm-hmm. It's the sort of the gulf between the message and mm-hmm. the people sending the message out. The story engine of that show generates what type of A stories? Well, in the pilot, it's on story in terms of the time. As I said, this is corporate. And this studio that these two men have just taken over about six months before, you know, they're two guys who are sort of looked at as like Wonderkin, where they've had two big successes right out of the box. They've come from nowhere, two big successes. And in Hollywood, everybody thinks, if we could just find the person who knows, because famously, William Goldman said, nobody knows anything. And it's true. Nobody knows what's going to be successful or good or anything like that. There's this weird belief that, yes, these guys, they know. <laughs> of course they don't, but they know. <laughs> so we're meeting them six months in. They're still finding their feet. And this is the day 
that the Germans are coming. They've been bought by a German company. It used to be a company that made carburetors for farm equipment, but I think we wanted to make it a little more showbiz. I, I think they owned a string of theaters or something like that. But they're, they are actually arriving for the first time. Fear is the great motivator in Hollywood. So it's all about the fear of what's going to happen when these Germans show up. And there's rumors and things they're hearing. And you see people preparing for the meeting. And in the midst of that, you're also seeing them interact with each other especially as their opinions, like the two main characters, have vastly different opinions of how to deal with the German. The loose cannon says, who cares? It's not like we know. It's not like we have the answers. We'll just bullshit them. <laughs> and, of course, the other guy's like, no, no, we have to prepare. And that obviously makes uh, conflict, leads to drama and so forth. And you're also getting a sense of history between the other characters. There's a woman, a lesbian woman, who is, works at the studio, is the confidant of the good guy. They've known each other from college. She was probably in love with him at one point, but that was never going to go anywhere. He's now married with a child. And the other guy has nothing. He has no family, has some sort of sketchy background, which we'll learn about over time. And then I wanted to layer it so you saw different sides of Hollywood. So these guys are new. They're like new there. There's a chairman of the board who's based on Alan Aladdy, who was old Hollywood, right? So I have Scotty, who's old Hollywood, like from the MGM days. And you see him trying to hang on because somebody says this guy is in danger of being the one thing you don't want to be in Hollywood, irrelevant. And that's what's waiting for all of us eventually, where all of us, it's going to pass us by. It's just creating as rich a world as you can in terms of different characters coming at the story from a different way and also how they interact with the other character. Automatically, I have a very, very complicated relationship between those two men, which is extremely codependent. But there's just borderline resentment, anger, all this stuff. But they need each other. Because the good guy is good-looking, he's like the Robert Redford of it, and he's the public face of this thing. So when they can't deal with this lunatic anymore, they go to him. And he's the guy who bullshits people and smiles and shakes their hand and gets it done. But the other guy's the killer, really abusing that people. That sounds fascinating. It's great. It's I fascinating. think it's so, good. So that relationship <coughs> can drive the whole show and what they do and what's spinning around them and what kind of subplots they have one hand in and then they're always coming back to each other. And but then you now you go down the line and you see one guy has a wife. Nowadays, you don't go in and pitch the pilot. You don't do that anymore because nowadays people sometimes, like if you sell to Netflix, they want to hear the series or at least the first two years. They want to know where it goes. Two years. Two years. And then they'll pick it up for two seasons. So you'll make two seasons automatically. So I know where this show ends, which is really helpful. So in terms of that process, you'll... Figure out the world of your story and your family of characters and where it is and all that. And, and what do I want to say? What am I observing? It, even something as simple as the idea that, let's just say for now, that business ultimately is bad. Like, we're in a capitalist society, but nevertheless, business is ultimately a bad capitalist, thing. Capitalism ultimately destroys and does a bad thing for, yeah. for people rather than... Well, it is not thing. humanist. You know, it doesn't, it, because ultimately the goal is tangible, which is money. At a certain point you go, I'm supposed to make money. And that doesn't necessarily jive with taking care of people or doing the best thing for people. We wouldn't be selling cigarettes and Coke and soda and all that sort of stuff if it was. The bad guy's a bad influence, and he ends up schnookering his partner into first going to a party and they get shit-faced. And then they get on a plane, the company jet, and fly to Phoenix to get pancakes at like 3 in the morning at this place that he remembers from being a kid. And they get there, and it's closed, and there's a sign on the window that says, International House of Pancakes coming soon. So there's these messages of 
All this stuff that you remember is going away and it's being taken over by this thing, which whether it's bad or good, it doesn't matter, but it's the same. If you have the first two seasons figured out, how do you get there? I mean, how much do you have to have past the pilot episode and the plots of the first, the second and third episodes? Like, How deep do you weave all the stories? Well, realistically, when you're pitching a show like that, you're going to give signpost moments that link things to things. I'm saying, since we're watching sort of the decline of this guy's morality and their relationship and how that goes, then I'm building moments that really illustrate that and his marriage, how his marriage falls apart and what his wife does and how that impacts him. Unfortunately, I can't give you any specifics because I don't want anybody to see this and then watch the show and go, oh, I know where this is going. But you have mapped out two years into their lives. How everything has changed, or maybe it's actually five years, yeah. you're doing it two years of show? I'm not doing that. This is showtime. They don't do it for two years. They do a season at a time. Or they'll do a pilot. So right now I'm just hoping to make the pilot. How much jeopardy is there? I mean, if it's drama, it's more of soap, not a soap opera, but it's a dramatic story. So mm-hmm. the jeopardy is all internal from the... Rescue Me was a real, obviously, life and death story. You were dealing with guys who every day could die and are saving people who could die. and So there's natural drama in that show, which was great because then the comedy really... We used to do like an equation. You go as dark as it goes here with drama, it has to go this light with the comedy. You had to balance the two out. That was a rule of the... Of we the learned it over time, but we went, yeah, it has to be that funny if it's going to be that dark, if and, it's going to be that serious. And for your Showtime show, is there an equation of that sort or it's mostly on no. the less dark side of things, but serious? It's serious, but it's also idiotic because it's show business, which makes no sense. You're talking about a business. You're talking about a corporation taking over a business that has no rules, no rules whatsoever, and which has been traditionally people have abused the system, have paid incredible amounts of money, wasted incredible amounts of money, got no return on it. We can just go through any list of movies in the last couple of years and go, why did they ever make that? The comedy comes from the lunacy of the world mixed with the fear and loathing that goes into it. So yes, it's a lot of internal stuff. Yeah, somebody's going to die eventually, but it's, 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 not, about it's not every week somebody dies. And what's your process in terms of beat sheets and treatments and story outlines and cards? How do you work? It depends on the thing. So like on Outsiders, I have a writer's room. We didn't have a big staff the first season. We had hired three people, so it's me and the guy who created the show and these three people. But I sort of run the room, and we talk very loosely, especially in that first season, because there was no template. The world exists in this pilot script. It just hasn't been seen. And there are many questions about what is that world like, and what words do they know, and what would they know about our world? And so we have a lot of conversation, and then we get down to actually saying, what would the last beat of the first season be? What's the last thing you see? We knew that as a group when I think it's this, again, it's not going to air for a while, so I won't say what it is. But we knew what it was, so we could write to it. And obviously, if you're doing 13 episodes, that's a slow burn to get to that. You slowly put everything in place so you can get to that last moment. We knew what the last image of the first season of Rescue Me was, so we could always write to it. We always slowly could make our way towards that thing. In that writer's room, there's a lot of conversation with a writer's assistant who writes down everything we say. We have all the notes, and at a certain point, I go, okay, let's start to beat it out. And we put cards on the wall and fill it all in and make the episode that way. If I'm writing my script, I don't use cards. I carry it around in my head. 
and I just know these story checkpoints that I'm going to hit. Oh, this is a good scene. I'm going to do that. And this is a good scene. And this is a sequence that I know I'm going to do. So I start that way. So you just imagine out scenes in, yeah, in the story. I, yeah. I sort of get the sense of this, and then I got to pay that off someplace. It's not formal in any way. No, I think I did do a beat sheet, because I have partners on this show. I wouldn't normally have this many partners, but Sony has a deal with George Clooney's company, and they came on board as producers with me, and so those folks are sort of weighing in. So I'm sure I did a beat sheet for them. and they. You so know. you did a verbal presentation with some kind yeah. of piece of paper? That yeah, Sony, I wouldn't normally do that. Normally I just go out and pitch it. But because and you keep it all in your head for your pitch? You don't write it, you don't have notes or anything I like do. That? I do have notes. It was a very long pitch. I'm a pretty good pitcher. I can get it done fairly quickly. This was a 40-minute pitch. That's long. It's long for me, and I think that's long for anybody. Because I'm doing five seasons, I'm going... Character, character, character. Here's what the pilot looks like. Here's the first season. We go to here. We go to oh, You just had the five seasons. You figured out that, so you pitched that, or you thought, I have to figure out five seasons before I try to sell this? I knew with some buyers I would need to know. If they said to me in the room, well, what happens at the end? I'd have to have the answer. Didn't necessarily have to pitch it, but I would have to have the answer. And not every buyer will ask for that. In fact, most of them won't, but you have to have it ready. I did that, and then in a weird situation, because you don't normally do this on a pilot, but the head of Sony at the time, Amy Pascal, knows George Clooney and said, what are you working on? And he goes, well, we're doing a thing with Peter Tolan. And she was like, what? What's this? So she calls the TV guys and says, who's directing? And they said, well, we don't usually hire a director until the pilot's sold, and you know, we bring him in then. She goes, no, no, we have to get a director. She said, send over a list. And it's like David Fincher and all these people that I'm like, you're wow. never going to get these people. So I just finally yeah, went, okay, days, you know. I like Bennett Miller. Did Capote yeah. and did, just did Foxcatcher. And yeah. they go, if you're going to play crazy time, he's I want right. to get Bennett Miller. So Bennett Miller comes in. I do the pitch for him. He goes, okay. So he's in. That's great. So now I have all these partners. So I must have prepared an actual beat sheet so they can see it. And then I wrote the script and everybody weighed in. And it's changed. I mean, it has changed based on notes. So you're doing a rewrite now, or you finished a rewrite, and you're waiting? Finished. Finally sent it to Showtime before the holidays, just maybe last Friday, so six days ago. Got on the phone with them. They said, we don't even need you to come in. We have so few notes. Oh, that's great. So they gave me the notes. I can do them in a day. I'm thinking about them. I want to make sure I do them right. And again, I'm not writing anything down. I'm just thinking about them. That's great. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm good. looking forward to seeing this show. You're I, going to I be the most important I'm show. I'm looking forward to doing it. Yeah. So what's the timeline? I mean, what do you think is going to happen now? You have to wait and see when Bennett Miller's ready to I do it? And no idea. I really have no idea. I don't even know what Showtime's timeline is in terms. I think they're going to need some new stuff. I mean, I think it's going to fit in well with what they have on now yeah, on yeah. Sunday nights. It sounds like a perfect fit for those. Uh, have you been watching Billions sort of, have you watched every episode? I have. So have I, which is interesting because the other thing is Giamatti is a producer on Outsiders. That script went to his company first and they picked it up and then it went to Sony and so forth. So I know Paul. And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch the show because I love him anyway. He's actor, great. You know? He's and great. I was like, hmm, I wasn't sure. And I thought, First episode, I'm like, okay. And I watched the second one. I'm like, mm, still not. I'm not 100%. Third episode, I think, was good. Third one was good. I didn't like the third one. I didn't like it. 
I thought it was hokey and there was stuff in it that I didn't like. Fourth one I thought was great. The where so he goes out of town to the Brock concert and all the shit so the, starts to happen. Which one was that? Is that the, that's the fourth one. That's the fourth one. Okay, that's what I was thinking. That's was the, the one that was one. just on. Okay, yeah, good. that was a good one. That was good. So I'm thinking that yeah. might be a good one. That show, it's very difficult in terms of the narrative, the main plot, yeah. as opposed to the subplots with the love stories, and it just yeah, doesn't yeah, have that yeah. much to do with that main story. Yeah. But they're pushing off his character, and Damian Lewis yeah. is going to be doing other stuff, so it's you want well, to you know. Well, you know, you said before about shows, do shows get better and whatever. I mean, typically, it takes, for like a sitcom, about seven to eight shows before everybody goes, oh yeah, this is the show we're doing. How does that impact the shows that are picked up by Netflix, you know, where it's like a box order, where they ordered one or two seasons same initially. Thing. Is it the same? same. It's a learning period? curve because you cast everybody, but you don't know what they can do. You don't really know until day to day you're seeing what they do. And you go, that's a strength, that's a weakness. I'm going to write to the strength and write away from the other thing. So things change based on knowledge. Okay, so rewriting. Yeah. What's your process? I hate it, but that's all writing is, is rewriting. When you sit down and write your first draft of something, yes. do you just go through it or skip back and rewrite pages and get the pages clean before you Sometimes. go on? or you, just... you mean in the first draft? Yeah, in your first rough draft. What's your schedule for doing one of those? When I was younger, I would write quickly, write really quickly, and I would get to a scene and go, they talk about this here. This is where they talk about that. And that's all I'd put, and then I'd go on to the next thing. And I'd hit scenes that I knew were going to be good, and I'd write, and write the hell out of those. You know, I really, they'd be done. But then I'd go, the end. And I'd go, whew, okay. Now there's a script in front of me. So I don't have to worry about that empty page. You know, I've actually got a template here. And that would then free you up to go, okay, it's not so daunting. You have this roadmap here. And then I would go back, like you're saying, go back and start to rethink and go, do I need that? That seems like a dead end. Maybe I don't need that. Figure it out. Nowadays, I write and it's done. I write my way through and it's done. It's cleaned up as I go. You'll write a scene on a given day and then you'll go back. You'll go scene by scene and rewrite the scene as you go? Sort of. I can write pretty fast. Let's say new pages. Let's say 20 to 25 pages. So I write half a script in a day. Sometimes I'm faster than that and sometimes I'm slower. So let's say I'm writing 25 pages. Do the 25 pages, get up and go. And then the next day when I go to sit down and write the other 25 pages, I go back to get a ramp up into the day's work, but also start to go, eh, fix it up a little bit as I go. And then I go into the other work. And then it's done, and then I let that sit for a day, and then I sit down and I get to go, okay, an hour. But it's pretty close. There aren't holes at that point. It's what I want it to be. Sometimes the the internal alarm goes off and goes, it's not 100% right, but it'll do for now. I'll see what people think and if anybody else catches it. But it's fairly done. You've been more yeah. TV than features. So the feature business is not good. Now. No. It no, hasn't been for the tough. last 10 years. I mean, I write features for myself. It'd be hard for me to write 25 pages of feature script in a day. Does the medium make it different? Or yeah. is it just your own I, process I, in terms of where you are and your experience with it now and just your own your again, instrument. Well, I'll tell you what it is. The, the reality is it's being having done it for almost 30 years. Because when I started out, I had weaknesses as a writer. I really did. Even though I'd done all that theater writing and stuff like that, I wasn't good with story. I was a funny guy. So I was glib, as it was famously told, right? So I could be funny for pages and pages, but there was no engine moving it story forward. It was just funny. And funny's fine. But a certain people go, okay, that's funny, but why are you telling me this? What happens next? It's always what happens next. 
And I wasn't good at that. And just by doing it over and over and over, I actually got good at it. So I'm now proficient. So by doing it over and over, it means observing how the stories yeah, play out on yeah. in this, and in seeing, the shows and just rewriting what you wrote them. and going, hmm, that's just sitting there. And in terms of thinking about character conflict or contrast in scenes, do you use fundamental ideas like unconsciously or consciously? Unconscious. Like, okay, what's going on in this scene? Is there anything going on between these characters that's moving the story forward? Do you think that way? Or? Yeah, you know, but it's all now, it's all subconscious. It's not like I have rules or anything, but you go, oh, I gotta write this scene and where am I placing it? Can I put it in a place that's incongruous with what's being said? To twist it. So it's just not coming out as flat dialogue or flat exposition or whatever, put it someplace. Have something else happening, that kind of thing. So you're always looking, even in a way like that, that again is a form of conflict where you're having how something is being said. When the thing itself is not conflict, make uh -huh. the conflict of where it's said, the difficulty in saying it, stuff like that. Okay, in television, in terms of the shows, this is like a teasers? There's a lot of questions about the start of an episode. Do you have feelings or ideas about how to do a teaser or how to do a teaser for a pilot or what? You're not saying like a this week on kind of thing. You're saying actually... No, say the pre-first act, the first it, five again, minutes or look, seven minutes of a... It depends what the show is. I mean, we used to do either called teasers or a cold open sometimes. A cold open usually has nothing to do with the show. So it's just a few minutes, like Cheers used to do them all the time, where you'd come in and there'd be some funny thing, and it would be just a free beat that had nothing to do. And then after the credits, and you came back from the commercial, the show would start, the story would start. So there's that kind of it. That's such a specific structure, and it seems to be in network comedy. I don't know, I don't in think drama, about that you don't that feel that like there's, it doesn't really hmm? matter. No, because I've been working in cable for so long. Because you don't have commercials, you just start the story. You're not fluffing anybody for the yeah. first few minutes. You're getting into the story, and I need that story time, so I don't want to waste it on something that doesn't have to do with anything. So hopefully you are grabbing people in the first couple of minutes and making them go, I'm going to watch this. So you're trying to bring them probably to the main conflict sooner rather than later in the first yeah. moments. Or you're reminding them of the conflict that has already happened. You're keeping that alive. Okay, any advice for writers trying to break in today? You know, the way you see the landscape now and what comes across your desk in terms of you know, new people and all yeah. that. When I started, like I said, writing the Murphy Brown spec script, that's like... That's the old days, man. People still write spec scripts. I don't know how that works anymore. Obviously, you would write a spec script for a form that you want to work in. If you're a half-hour comedy person, definitely write that. But I always tell young writers now, there's a thing that exists now that didn't when I started out, and it's like YouTube or any kind of social media. I would have been doing What you that. did was that, except it was live theater. I, I would have been doing some form of like what Funny or Die does or things like that. So I always say to people, if you're young and starting out, that probably means that you know actors, you know somebody who's got a camera, because now it's any camera. You can shoot on your phone, you can do it. So write something and make it. Make it and put it on YouTube or put it someplace and people will see it. Let me tell you, I would much rather at this point, and somebody wrote an essay a couple of years ago called No, I Won't Read Your Fucking Script, which is unfortunately like everybody's mantra. is like, oh, fuck, not a script. I don't want to read another script. But if I'm stuck on the phone or I'm an agent or somebody in television and I'm like this, uh, 
waiting on hold or whatever, and you send me a postcard or a thing that has a thing on it on YouTube, and I go in and I find your thing, and it's four minutes, I'll do that. And this is not crazy, what I'm saying. A couple of years ago, I was doing a pilot for Fox, three or four years ago or something. It was a half hour. And we were sitting at the monitors, and I think we were shooting, and you know, it takes a long, so there's a lot of downtime. And we're waiting, and I'm seeing the young people, the kids, and they've got their iPads and stuff like that. And I go, what are you looking at? And they go, it's this really funny thing on YouTube. It's really clever. It was called Next Time on Donnie. So what it was, was supposedly there's a series about a guy named Donnie, <laughs> but this is just the next time on Donnie. This is just the, here's what you're going to see next week. Like that two minutes or yeah. two and a half minutes. They produced it. There were special effects. It was hilarious. Two guys from Brooklyn or someplace in New York, two young guys from Brooklyn. I met with them. Ben Stiller's company met with them. Will Ferrell, you know, the Funny or Die guys yeah. met with them. They ended up doing a show. I, I forget who it was for, maybe for Comedy Central or something. But they started out by doing that. And they're in it, and they shot it, and they wrote it. And it was really funny. So if you are really funny or really good at whatever, that's the way to do it. Okay. All right. That's very good advice. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much. This has been a thrill. Oh, it's and great. a pleasure. And, long and highly informative. I've learned so much from speaking with you. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I'm glad we could finally do it. It's been and a long time. I look time. forward to seeing a new show on Showtime. I hope. And that's it for now. If you would like a PDF transcript of today's show or want to check out our schedule, you can get it all and more at theprocess.ink. And of course, we're on iTunes and all those other good places. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Benedict.